want to thank Scott for that promotion. And really the closest I ever got to being a reverend when, was when I told my dad that I wanted to be like our Lutheran pastor, Pastor Keys, because he got to yell at people. <laughs> he was what you call a Baptist Lutheran. Um, much of what I'm going to say today uh, is borrowed from uh, Stewart's library. And if you've not been in his office, he really has an amazing uh, bevy of commentaries, and I really appreciate having access to that. I'm really grateful for all the, the theologians who have devoted their lives to studying the Word, and anything that I say that might be helpful or good out of my mouth today is really a result of the Holy Spirit working through these godly theologians. So um, it was, uh, it's been a fun time uh, preparing for this. And before I start, uh, I'd like to just pray one more time. Father God, thank you so much for this opportunity to share your word. And we know your word is true and powerful and it can change lives. And Father, thank you that it points us to your son and our savior, Jesus. And so this morning, Father, may all that we do, may all that I say um, and what we think about bring you glory and honor and praise. And we pray in your son's name. Amen. If you have your Bibles, if you would uh, open up to Hebrews 10, 19 through 25. There it is. Let me go ahead and read that. <clears throat> it says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one, or one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So why did I select this passage in Hebrews? Recently I went to a conference, and that was the theme, and they gave away a free book on Hebrews, so that was encouraging. I like free books, and I was reading through that, and I was reminded of this passage, and it, it, over the years in my life, it's really been one of my favorite passages. And I kind of feel like I'm in the seventh inning stretch of my life, um, and these verses feel very personal to me. And as the writer of Hebrews exhorts in us towards faith, hope, and love in these three lettuce passages, it reminded me of the importance of drawing near to Christ, of holding fast to our hope, we have in Christ and the importance of consistently meeting together so that we can love and encourage one another. So let's start with an overview of, he of Hebrews, kind of a 30,000 foot overview. It's not an easy book to understand with just a cursory or quick reading. There's many references to old, the Old Testament. And if you're like me, throughout my life, I've kind of found the Old Testament to be a little confusing, mysterious, maybe even a little tedious at times. You know, they say that if you 
reading through the Bible, once you hit Leviticus, that's where everyone stops. You got to plow through sometimes. But I've also found the Old Testament very inspiring and instructive. And maybe more than <clears throat> any other New Testament book, Hebrews will drive us to a better understanding of the Old Testament. Hebrews is going to remind us from the beginning to the end that the Bible is the story of redemption with the su supremacy of Christ clearly illustrated throughout this sermon to the Hebrew Christians. Hebrews is addressing a problem uh, and challenges uh, to the faith of these Jewish Christians who grew up in Judaism but have believed in Jesus. Michael Kruger, a professor of New Testament, puts it this way. For whatever reason, perhaps the pressure of persecution and opposition, they are thinking about going back to Judaism. They are considering leaving this newfound faith and going back to their old ways, animal sacrifices, worship in the temple. In other words, they were starting to doubt if this Jesus was all that he was promised to be. As we understand this problem being addressed in Hebrews, it becomes clear that the author and the theme of this book is trying to communicate two things, or one thing, really. Jesus is greater, or as many commentators say, the supremacy of Christ in all things. Most conservative scholars will uh, say that we really don't know who wrote the book of Hebrews, but we do have a clear picture of how the author of this sermon responded to the challenges that the Hebrew believers were, feel, were facing. Hebrews chapter 1 through uh, chapter 10, verse 18, we're going to read about the true facts about our Savior, the indicatives of who Christ is when we compare him to the old ways of worship at the temple and animal sacrifices. The author tells us that Christ is better, he's greater. Christ is superior. He breaks down these first, uh, first 10 chapters up, up through verse 19 this way. Right in the beginning, chapter one, verses one through three, Christ is superior to the prophets. And then in the rest of chapter one and chapter two, Christ is superior to the angels. Chapter three into four, Christ is superior to Moses and to Joshua. And then in, cha in chapter 4 through chapter 7, Christ is superior to Aaron. He's the great high priest. And then 8 through our verse in 19, Christ is superior to the old covenant. Christ is the better sacrifice. And then starting in Hebrews 19 in the passage we just read, through the end of the book, we have the imperatives the exhortations, the examples of faith. I do want to just take a moment to kind of go down a rabbit trail a little bit. There are six warnings in the book of Hebrews, and if you just read it first time you've ever read it, you might come away thinking that you could lose your salvation because the author is really serious. This is a sermon, and he really wants them to warn them to not go back uh, to their old ways. It kind of reminds me of a, a pastor that uh, I knew of in Little Rock. My wife actually attended that church at Emmanuel Baptist Church. He was, that was the biggest Baptist church in Little Rock at the time. His name was 
W.O. Vaught. And sometimes he would lean over and he'd say, are you listening to me? And I think that's what this, this, this writer is trying to say to the Hebrews in these warning passages. Are you listening to me? This is serious stuff. Don't go back to the old ways. And just so you know, that, that can be a difficult question to deal with. Um, and I refer you to Stuart on those. No. Um, but our position in our church is that we, we believe in the perseverance of the saints. In fact, in our doctrinal statement, we have one of the doctrines of grace called the perseverance of the saints. And it says this, and those whom God has accepted in the Son and sanctified by his Spirit will never totally nor finally fall away from the state of grace, but shall certainly persevere to the end. So that's what we believe as a church, and I take great encouragement in that. There's several verses listed on our website that support that. And then, as you know, we're going through the Westminster Confession um, on Sunday nights. I put in a plug for that. It's been really a great time. And again, uh, one of the questions in that, in the uh, uh, sh shorter catechism, is question 36 that addresses this issue. And it says this, it says, the benefits which in this life do accompany or flow from justification, adoption, and sanctification are assurance of God's love, peace of conscience, joy in the Holy Spirit, increase of grace, and here it is, perseverance therein to the end. So even though those warnings may be difficult to understand when you just read them for the first time, know this, that that the Bible clearly teaches, we believe, the perseverance of the saints. So let's get into our passage. Many of you um, have studied the Bible your whole life. You've taken training in studying the Bible. You know when you see the word therefore, you really need to pay attention. And again, in the first nine and a half or first 10 uh, chapters up into 18, we have the author proclaiming the truth regarding the person and work of Jesus. And now with that linking word, therefore, we transition from what we believe or doctrine and move into exhortations to take action because of the person and work of Jesus. By, by God's grace, commitment to these let us verses in 22 through 25, it, those verses can transform our life. So I've broken down this passage in the following manner. Uh, verses 19 through 21, the reason we can have confidence to approach God. And then in Hebrews 10, 22 through 25, are the rewards of confidently approaching God. And those are that we can draw near to God, we can hold fast and persevere, and we can love one another. So Hebrews 10, uh, 10, 19 through 21, the reason we have confidence to approach God. Most of us, when we work hard at something, whether it's studying for a test in school or an athletic or just doing your job well, you'll gain confidence by working hard. Whether it's a particular skill um, in athletics, the harder you work, the better, the more confident you'll be. Um, I thought about this, and I remembered that the one thing I was very confident of growing up was fielding a ground ball. 
And the reason is I love baseball. I had dreams of being the second baseman for the New York Mets. I didn't uh, make it, obviously. Um, uh, but I had dreams of it. And we had this wall by our school. I could walk to my school and just throw ground balls for hours after hours and, and play scenarios in, in my head. And, and I actually you know, became so good at it that I wanted, uh, when I played baseball in high school, I was hoping they would hit me the ball. I was that confident. Not so much when it came to hitting. I grew up in the era of no batting cages, no a pitching machine. So the only batting practice I got was 10 to 15 pitches during practice, each practice before a game. So I, I didn't really, wasn't able to put in the work, and I wasn't a very good hitter. I had no confidence. And I, I think, you know, again, it's important to gain confidence in different areas of our life. But one thing and I thank God for this, that we don't have to work hard for, is, is to getting access to the Lord uh, in prayer, uh, just in worship. That access is free. The work has already been done. As one commentator said, we have strong reasons to approach God with confidence. We can confidently approach God in verses 19 through 20, because of our sacrificial suffering savior. Francis Schaeffer said, the central message of biblical Christianity is the possibility of men and women approaching God through the work of Christ. Folks, the door is wide open for us to meet with God. So just let that sink in a little bit. Unlike Israel in the Old Testament, we do not need to go through a temple, temple ceremonial system to meet with God. Christ, our ultimate sacrificial lamb, has given us direct access to our Heavenly Father by his blood. Now, if you're like me, and if you look back on your Christian life, you'll see ebbs and flows. There's been seasons in my life that have been lukewarm, to be quite honest. And, but I'm reminded, and if you're going through a season like that, be reminded of these verses in Revelations 3, 19 through 20. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. These words of loving reproof and discipline to the lukewarm church at Laodicea teach us that when we stray, we can come back to Christ when we repent and open the door to fellowship with God through Christ. And then in Matthew 27, 51, it reminds us about the curtain that was torn when Christ died. And the curtain, if you remember, was the entrance or the covering uh, that separated the Holy of Holies. And the, the high priest could only go into the Holy of Holies one time a year on Yom Kippur to, to offer the blood sacrifice. But again, because of Jesus' blood, we can meet with our holy creator anytime. In verse 21, we can also confidently approach God because our priest is the greater priest, Jesus Christ. He's greater than Aaron. Again, we read in the Old Testament about the ceremonial actions that the priest had to take to atone for the sin or to worship God. But now we have a great priest who can confidently approach God 
and, and we can worship him because we are forgiven for all our sins. What an amazing, grace-giving, sympathetic, merciful high priest we have as recorded in Hebrews 4, 14 through 16. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Note again in this passage, like the one that we're, we're going through now, the emphasis on our confession and confidence to draw near. In verses 25, uh, 22 to 25, the rewards of confident, confidently approaching God, um, I kind of paraphrase these verses in the following manner. Confidence in approaching God encourages us to draw near to God in full assurance of faith, resulting in us holding fast to our hope found in our confession as we consider how to encourage one another to love when faithfully gathering because the day of Christ approaches. In these last few verses, we see exhortations to pursue God because of the assurance of faith in Christ leads to hope, and love for one another. In verse 22, we now can see that we, we not only have a greater high priest, but we have a priestly privilege ourselves by drawing near to God in worship through our assured faith in Christ. Under the old covenant, again, this priestly privilege had been restricted to a few, but now we have that same privilege of the high priest who went into the Holy of Holies. We can confidently draw near to God because Christ cleansed all of our consciences by removing our sins through the sprinkling of Christ's blood, something the Old Testament sacrificial system could never completely accomplish. We receive this cleansing through faith and not by works, either ours or some earthly priest. In Hebrews 7, 24, 25, we read, but he holds this his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. We can draw near to God because of the greater sacrifice and blood of our Savior, our greater high priest, and we have all the rights and privileges of priesthood. The Reformation leaders, guided by the Bible, they introduced this doctrine called the priesthood of all believers, which is summarized by theologian J.V. Fesco. He states, in contrast to the beliefs of the medieval church, the Protestant doctrine of the priesthood of all believers holds that there is no longer a priestly class of people within God's people, but that all believers share in Christ priestly status by virtue of their union with Christ. Therefore, Christ was the final priestly mediator between God and his people, and Christians share in that role through him. 
This means that Christians are not dependent upon the priests within the church to interpret scripture for them or to affect God's blessing of forgiveness for them. And Stuart will like this part. This does not mean that we should not do away with pastoral ministerial authorities. While those authorities are part of the way that God blesses his church with instruction in sound doctrine, those with churchly authority need the rest of the body just as much. The access we have to God reminds me of a page from presidential history books. Um, one of my favorite presidents is T Theodore Roosevelt. And there was this gang of people in the White House called the White House Gang. And they were mainly his kids and his vice president's kids. Whenever possible, these gang members conducted their official business meetings in the attic of the executive mansion. President Roosevelt was an honorary gang member who would often curtail official business to join the boys for hide-and-go-seek and other spirited activities. Roosevelt frequently challenged the lad to obstacle races in the White House hallways. Isn't it amazing the kind of access these kids had to the leader of the free world? These fun-loving kids had direct access to the president. And it just, again, is just a picture in my mind to the more how much more amazing it is that we have direct access to our holy, glorious creator, our heavenly father. Moving on to verse 23. I may get to preaching here, so be careful. <laughs> um, my wife is freaking out right now. No, she's fine. <laughs> um, it talks about persevering, that we need to hold fast in the truth that upholds our hope, because God is faithful. One commentator said, perseverance is essential to these Christians because like Israel in the wilderness, they were undergoing testing en route to God's promised land. And so it is with us when we face our own testing. And yes, even persecution in this life until we go to our promised home in the new kingdom. In verse 23, we see the heavenly tension that Stuart's been talking about. Uh, that he's mentioned before in some of his sermons. The tension between our own effort and God's promises to complete the work in us. The promise here is that we will persevere until the end. But as I read earlier from the Westminster Shorter Catechism, we need to remember that those in Christ will persevere, but we have a role to play. We are exhorted to hold fast to our confession. So what's the writer getting at here? I think when he talks about confession, he's referring to what we believe. It is what we know is true. And as Christians, we know what is true is from God's word, the Bible. So our emphasis here at Faith Bible Church, and we make no apologies for it, is on sound doctrine and Bible. Because we believe God's word is the source of truth. This, of course, is not very popular today in our culture. We are told what matters is not truth, but our own subjective experience. Feelings, unfortunately, have triumphed over truth. One author said the majority of Americans think Christianity is goofy, offensive, or just plain crazy. And every month, I've read recently, 
every month or so, well-known Christians who have renounced their faith as they bend to the pressure to conform to the popular culture. So if we're going to hold fast to our confession, we need to know what we believe and why. We don't need less Bible theology and sound doctrine. We need more. Recently, Ligonier Ministries, that was uh, R.C. Sproul's ministry, uh, it's still going very strongly today, conducted a survey that they called the State of Theology. And here's a summary of what they found. This survey shows that people inside the church need clear Bible teaching just as much as those outside the church. 30% of evangel evangelicals reject the deity of Christ. 46 believe that people are good by nature. 22% think the gender identity is a matter of personal choice. Remember, these people are, were identified as evangelical Christians. But you can see by these results that the body of Christ needs to be reminded of the truth as we face an onslaught from our culture. In fact, some of the uh, Christians that I've, uh, that I've been reading about call our cu culture a neo-paganism. We've moved from post-Christianity to even to a neo-paganism. You know, some Christian apologists point to the 60s at a time when popular culture started to become a stronger influence in our lives uh, rather than the church and our local pastor. Um, and we gotta be honest, if we think about the culture becoming our primary influence in what we believe, we will lose hope. The loss of hope can be seen in a popular song from the 1969. It's actually one of my dad's favorite singers. Um, her name was Peggy Lee. It, it rose up to number 11 on the hit parade. And the song talks about the loss of a home, the loss of love, the hopelessness of death, and it's summed up in this chorus. Is that all there is? Is that all there is? If that's all there is, my friends, then let's keep dancing. Let's break out the booze and have a ball, if that's all there is. Pretty, pretty depressing, pretty hopeless. But thankfully, the Bible is full of hope. But we must fight to hold on to our confession, then our hope will be strengthened as we're reminded of God's promises for our salvation, our sanctification, our glorification, and our promised eternal rest. I love the way Dutch theologian Gerhardus, or that's a tough name to say, Mr. Voss, V-O-S, he speaks to the importance of hope in, in our Christian experience. He says this, the Christian is one who lives with hev his heavenly destiny ever in full view. The Christian's outlook is not bounded by the present life and the present world. The Christian sees that which is and that which is to come in their true proportions and in their proper perspective. Hope, not possession, is that which gives tone and color to the Christian's life. The Christian has the frame of mind of an heir who knows that he or she is entitled to large treasures upon which he or she will enter at a definite point of time. In other words, folks, this world, this life, this culture is not all there is.
In verses 24 and 25, we move from an emphasis of holding fast to our sound doctrine to relational exhortations. The writer exhorts us to consider how to provoke and encourage one another to love and to faithfully gather as we look to his promised return. That's why I asked Scott to read that, those verses about Christ returning in Thessalonians. It's so important that we look to the Lord's promised return. Now, it talks about provoking. I purposely used the word provoke from the old King James to make Scott happy. But seriously, I love that word. And, and the other translations say to stir or to stimulate. And those are great words, too. But I think provoke gets a, the writer's uh, intent, uh, gets the writer's, across the writer's intent better. Remember, these Hebrew Christians were probably facing persecution. They were being pressured to go back to their old religion. And it was important for them to stay together to demonstrate sacrificial love and for one another and all with the view of Christ's promised return. It's a reminder to us to, to stay strong in our faith. We need the church. We need the body. We need one another. Provoke can mean to prod or stick or poke someone to action. I thought about growing up with my older brother. Our, our little twin beds were separated by about three feet, just enough for a yardstick for my brother to poke me in the ribs when I snored at night, provoking me to action to stop. Provoking or stirring up can also mean to, to stimulate to the point of discomfort. That's hard to think about sometimes. We don't always like to think that in Christian relationships, um, they can be a little uh, uncomfortable. But sometimes we need that brother in Christ to show us love by encouraging us to take action or, or to point out error in our life that may be causing harm to, uh, to uh, others or to my witness. The example, of course, is the Apostle Paul in Galatians 2, uh, where he had to provoke, he had to confront Peter for his error in teaching about the Gentile Christians. And it says that Paul opposed Peter to his face. It was pretty serious. The writer of Hebrews, though, also commends these Jewish Christians for their good works. In Hebrews 6.10, he says, For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints, as you still do. And let me just say, and I know I speak for the other elders, what a joy it is to be a part of a church that loves so well. But just like us, this church of Jewish believers needed continual encouragement to sacrificially serve and love one another. And we can't stir or provoke one another to love and good works unless we meet together. And now I'm pro I know I'm preaching to the choir, and we, we are so grateful um, that this COVID year did not have a negative impact on our membership. Uh, we thank you for that. We thank for your faithful commitment to this body during a tough time. Um, but that's not been true in a lot of churches throughout the United States. There's been a significant reduction in attendance uh, since most of the danger of COVID has gone away. It's really an American problem. All you have to do is read about China, 
or the, or the Christians in China or the Christians in Iran who are literally dying to meet together. They can't wait to get together. And we need to have that same desire and that same love for gathering. It's understandable that these Hebrew believers may have been fearful about meeting together because they were under pressure. They were under perse persecution. But even under those tough conditions, they were being admonished to remember the importance and blessing of being together. We have to remember that walking with Christ is not a solo sport. And listen to Dr. Kruger's words here, this challenge. Faith is one of those things you can't do alone. Many people try to. Perhaps they've had a bad experience in church, or perhaps they just don't see why they should make the commitment. But we need, we need to stir up one another to love and good works. He goes on to say, you need someone to stoke the fire in you, to keep you on the right track, to help you to get up when you don't want to, to shake you occasionally and to tell you to get it together. You need to be part of a team with teammates who will help, encourage, push, rebuke, and love you, and whom you can help, encourage, push, rebuke, and love. Good word there. There's approximately 60 verses in the New Testament that talk about one another. And just a quick sampling of those uh, that remind us how important it is to get together. In James 5.16, it says, Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. So the importance of getting together that we can confide in one another confess our sins, and pray for one another. And then in Galatians 6, 1 through 2, it says, Restore one another and bear one another's burdens. And then in John 13 through 35, loving one another is a witness to the world. This verse says, By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So faith family, we will be a witness to the world as we continue to be a church that does not neglect to meet together, providing us opportunities to love and serve one another. So again, finally, as we encourage to, uh, one another to love and good works, it talks about do it as we see the day drawing near. And again, thanks, Scott, for reading those, those verses, which are so encouraging in Thessalonians. The day drawing near, what does that mean? In the Old Testament, it often had uh, a connotation of the day of the Lord is near, which signifies a day of dreaded judgment. But in the New Testament, our, our, author, our, our New Testament authors also predict or talk about the coming of the day of the Lord and its time of when Christ will return. For these Hebrew Christians, it was a reminder that Christ will return to bring both judgment and salvation. Salvation and joy to those who by God's grace will persevere and judgment to those who were never part of God's family. And it reminds us of Paul's words in 2 Timothy 4.8. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day and not only to me 
but also to all who have loved his appearing. Folks, that's us, as we love and look forward to his appearing. You know, throughout history, well-meaning Christians thought Christ's return was imminent. I mean, you can look through before the Reformation, during the Reformation, uh, many well-known teachers and preachers thought that Christ's return was imminent. And certainly one would not be wrong to think the times we're facing now signal that the end may be near. But we could be wrong. And I like what uh, Dr. Richard Phillips, I like his perspective as he sees the day drawing near. He says, the day of Christ is fast approaching. It races toward us through either the end of history or our own deaths, both of which bring us into Christ's presence. How should we then live? If we want to please God, grow in grace, and help other believers, let this agenda of faith, hope, and love define the pattern of our lives for however much time is given to us to live on this earth. So in other words, let us, draw, let us confidently draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, what a glorious promise that you are coming back someday. And as we are here now, help us to faithfully hold to the confession that gives us hope, that encourages us. And Father, I know myself, I feel at times I'm prone to wander but I'm so grateful that we can come back to you, that the door is always open. Father, we rejoice in the, the gift of our priesthood that we come before you freely with confidence, able to worship you, to give you praise and all the glory that the holy God deserves. Again, we thank you for this time this morning, and we pray all these things in your son's name. Amen.